This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF form. The Greatness of the Great Commission, Christian Enterprise in a Fallen World, written by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr., published in 1990 by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, narrated by Joseph Spurgeon. Chapter 12, Pessimism and the Great Commission. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are all well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. Then all of the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Numbers 13, Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, through chapter 14, verse 1. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4. The dispensationalist Christian has a different understanding of the Great Commission from the postmillennialist. In addition, so do many amillennialist and historic non-dispensational premillennialists. And that difference of understanding is not merely one of a shading of gray tones, but of a stark contrast of black and white as we shall see. The three eschatological systems mentioned in the preceding paragraph may be characterized as pessimistic, whereas the postmillennial view may be seen as optimistic. In categorizing them as pessimistic, I am speaking of the following issues. 1. As systems of gospel proclamation, each teaches the gospel of Christ will not exercise any majority influence in the world before Christ's return. 2. As systems of historical understanding, each, in fact, holds the Bible teaches there are prophetically determined, irresistible trends downward toward chaos in the outworking and development of history. And therefore, 3. As systems for the promotion of Christian discipleship, each dissuades the church from anticipating and laboring for wide-scale success in influencing the world for Christ during this age. The pessimism-optimism question has very much to do with the practical endeavors of Christians in the world today. All evangelical Christians are optimistic in the ultimate sense that God will miraculously win the war against sin and Satan at the end of history by direct supernatural intervention, either in a premillennial kingdom introduced by the second coming or at the final judgment which introduces the new heavens and new earth. A recent illustration of the practical effects of a pessimistic worldview is found in a statement recorded by Charles Colson. He speaks of Christians ceasing to attempt to be an influence for righteousness in the political and social arena. A prominent evangelical veteran of the battles of the 80s told me he was through. Why bother, he confided privately. Examples of eschatological pessimism. Two best-selling authors in our day, well-known representatives of dispensationalism, are Hal Lindsey and Dave Hunt. These men have recognized the significant difference between their dispensational understanding of the Great Commission and its implications and the postmillennial understanding with its implications. In fact, they have written recent works for the very purpose of countering the postmillennial understanding of the Great Commission. But, as we shall see, these two men are not the only evangelicals who dispute the historic postmillennial view. The dispensational view sees the Great Commission in this age as having only a very restrictive influence in bringing men to salvation. 
the hundreds of thousands of evangelical Christians who read dispensational literature have had continually drummed into their minds the teaching that under no circumstance will the gospel be victorious in our age. Let me demonstrate this by a quick survey of quotations from several dispensational authors. Hal Lindsey states the situation about as strongly as can be. Christ died for us in order to rescue us from this present evil age. Titus 2, 11-15 Show what our focus, motivation, and hope should be in this present age. We are to live with the constant expectation of the any moment appearing of our Lord to this earth. H.A. Ironside notes in his comments on the Great Commission, We know that not all nations will accept the message in this age of grace. William MacDonald points out that the Great Commission does not presuppose world conversion. And in fact, the opposite is true, according to J. H. White Pentecost, for during the course of the age there will be a decreasing response to the sowing of the seed of the gospel. Stanley Towsaint concurs when he knows that the evil will run its course and dominate the church age. Warren Wiersbe agrees. Some make this parallel of the mustard seed teach the worldwide success of the gospel, but that would contradict what Jesus taught in the first parable. If anything, the New Testament teaches a growing decline in the ministry of the gospel as the end of the age draws near. In fact, he notes later that it would seem that Satan is winning, but the test is at the end of the age, not during the age. Charles C. Ryrie denies any postmillennial hope based on the Great Commission when he speaks in opposition to the postmillennial hope. Quote, Their confidence in the power of God causes them to believe that the Great Commission will be fulfilled and that most of the world will be saved. The postmillennial view of church history is wrong, he says, because defection and apostasy, among other things, will characterize that entire period. Consequently, Dave Hunt argues that only a small percentage of mankind is willing to come to Christ in repentance and be born again by the Spirit of God, and that the vast majority of people will continue to reject Christ in the future, just as they have in the past. Hal Lindsey scorns the postmillennials for believing that virtually the whole world population will be converted. I wish this were possible, but God himself says that it is not. In fact, the world will progressively harden its heart against the gospel and plunge itself into destruction. Historic premillennialists would concur with such a dismal prospect for the widespread success of the gospel. J. Barton Payne believes that evil is present in our world as predicted in the holy books of the Bible. This evil must occur because it is forecast of Christ's soon return. Robert H. Mounts laments that it is difficult to see from history alone any cause for optimism. He is certain that it will be a persecuted church that will witness the victorious return of Christ, rather than a world-conquering church. George Eldon Ladd concurs, in spite of the fact that God has invaded history in Christ, and in spite of the fact that it was to be the mission of Jesus' disciples to evangelize the entire world, Matthew 24:14, the world would remain an evil place. False Christ would arise who would lead many astray. Wars, strife, and persecution would continue. Wickedness would abound so as to chill the love of many. Among amillennialists, we discover the same sort of despair. Cornelius van der Waal writes that, I do not believe in inevitable progress toward a much better world in this dispensation, and God's church has no right to take an optimistic, triumphalistic attitude. H. De Jongst and J. M. von Krimpen are forthright in their declaration that there is no room for optimism. Toward the end, in the camps of the Satanic and Antichrist, culture will sicken, and the church will yearn to be delivered from its distress. All millennialist David Guthrie, according to dispensationalist John F. Walford, readily agrees that the biblical point of view is pessimistic. That is, the world as it is now constituted will not be revived and improved, but instead will be destroyed and replaced. At this juncture, we should recall our opening questions from our introduction. 1. What is the Great Commission? 2. What is the goal of the Great Commission? And 3. What is the nature of the Great Commission? The dispensational understanding of the Great Commission, as indicated in the response to the three questions above, 
may be designated the pietistic model. By that I mean that dispensationalism seeks personal piety while denying the possibility and even desirability of cultural conversion. Beyond millennialist and historic premillennialist views may be termed the composite model. By that I mean that although they do encourage Christian cultural engagement, nevertheless their systems allow only sporadic, temporary, partial victories for Christianity in terms of any beneficial cultural influence. The postmillennial understanding of the Great Commission may be designated the transformational model. It not only seeks, but expects both widespread personal piety and Christian cultural transformation. Again, all non-postmillennial views deny widespread and enduring gospel success in transforming men, nations, and cultures in this age. Let me illustrate this by a few citations. This same pessimism regarding the gospel success is evident among historic premillennialists, such as George E. Ladd. The gospel is not to conquer the world and subdue all nations to itself. Hatred, conflict, and war will continue to characterize the age until the coming of the Son of Man. Such a view obviously is held by amillennialists, as indicated by Louis Burkhoff. The fundamental idea that the whole world will gradually be one for Christ is not in harmony with the picture of the end of the ages found in Scripture. The Bible does not lead us to expect the conversion of the world. But dispensational writings are the most widely read and evidence the most vigorous opposition to the cultural influence of the gospel, hence my special attention to their views. Given the widespread popularity of the dispensational system among evangelicals and the dispensationalism's attempted disavow of historic pessimism, I will cite several of their writings in order to press the point home most convincingly. Dispensationalist Charles Stevens puts it about as clearly as can be when he states, The New Testament concept of the church in this age is typified by the wilderness tabernacle, serving a pilgrim people, built with traveling facilities, going after the lost, visiting, seeking, praying. John Walvoord writes, It is not God's plan and purpose to bring righteousness and peace to the earth in this present age. We will never attain the postmillennial dream of peace on earth through the influence of the church. Wayne House and Thomas Ice agree. Nowhere in the New Testament does it teach the agenda of Christianizing the institutions of the world. Dave Hunt follows suit in downplaying postmillennial expectations. This impossible goal of Christianizing the world is now being presented as the long-overlooked true intent of the Great Commission. Elsewhere he writes, It is further reduction of Christianity to suggest that the Great Commission calls us to reassert the allegedly lost dominion over this earth and its lower creatures. And it is a gross perversion to turn the Great Commission into a cultural mandate, which assigns to the Church the task of taking over the world to establish the kingdom of God before Christ's return. Hal Lindsey vigorously denies what the premise of this present book demonstrates. There is absolutely nothing stated or implied to support the dominionist interpretation of the Great Commission in either Mark, Luke, or Acts. The purpose of the decision demanded is forgiveness of sin and a spiritual new birth, not the reformation of society. Fundamentalist George Dollar notes of dispensationalist fundamentalists that they believe the whole world scene is one of deterioration and will so continue until the rapture takes place and that our main business should be to rescue people out of the mess and not try to improve it or preserve its good characteristics. Conclusion As I have engaged the text of the Great Commission and resolution of the questions before us, I have cited and interacted with various writers from among the various pessimistic and pietistic schools of thought. I did not do this with a view to demeaning of evangelical brethren, but in order to demonstrate by documentary evidence the radical differences among evangelicals regarding the Great Commission. In addition, I hope the reader has seen the overwhelming scripture support for the postmillennial view of the Great Commission, which has recently begun to be assaulted as a road to Holocaust. 
because it has no place for the political exaltation of the nation of Israel over other nations, and this worldly, because it is concerned with life in the tangible world as well as in heaven. The dispensationalist is alarmed at the very thought of Christian cultural transformation. In his view to attempt such, quote, is to err so grievously as to lead one into a program that is hopeless. It calls necessarily for the adopting of means that are unauthorized, in the setting of a goal that is unattainable, as it is unscriptural. Herein lies the great mistake of the kingdom builders, their tribe decreases, who have as their goal a vision of Christianizing the world. End quote. In opposition to the view presented herein, the dispensationalist retorts, quote, Although postmillennialists see evangelism as part of the Great Commission, their main focus and goal is to Christianize the world's culture and political systems and to take dominion over them. This is not even what God had in mind in the Eden Mandate, but it is certainly not what the Great Commission teaches. End quote. Due especially to dispensationalism, systemic requirements, teaching the God-ordained ineffectiveness and decline of the church in history, that system of theology has inadvertently watered down the command, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20 The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.